0: welcome back to series three of mud between your toes conversations with pete wood in this series i'm interviewing people from around the world from all walks of life and all with stories to share so sit back and enjoy hello my guest today is head of the wwf wildlife crime program He's here today to chat to me about the illegal wildlife trade. So Rob Perry-Jones, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood.
1: Peter, thanks, nice to be here, good to see you.
0: Rob, as I've already said, you're head of the WWF Wildlife Crime Programme. So how did you start out in that career? Uh, I, well,
1: I started back back in Hong Kong when when we met some 20 years ago. Um, At the time, I was with TRAFFIC, the Global Wildlife Trade Monitoring Programme, and we still have a very strong partnership with TRAFFIC. And I was focusing on trade, uh, wildlife trade mainly coming into China, but also the the trade in Asia. So it's a global programme, as there's a lot of demand coming in, but also trade within Asia.
0: Yeah, I remember first meeting you when you were working out in the Hong Kong wetlands and I remember you cut a, a rather dashing figure in your, your khaki uniform. Anyway, now, um, unless people have been living under a rock, most people will agree that our wildlife is in crisis. But really, how serious is it? Which species are particularly vulnerable? That's a good, a
1: good question, and uh, I'm going to break it in two, and I'll come back to the serious part of that question in a second. But let's look at the evidence of, of the impact of humans on, on the planet. We have an estimated million species are heading towards extinction, and there's been a two-third decline in global wildlife in the past 50 years. We've lost half of the forests, half of the barrier reefs, and 80% of wetlands, and 90% of commercial marine stocks are over or fully fished. And the situation there is similar in rivers and lakes, with massive declines in migratory species. Now, of course, not all of this is about wildlife crime, but even the IWT, the illegal wildlife trade, or IWT figures, they're stark. Between 2005 and 2015, around 10,000 tonnes of protected rosewoods were seized, and that same period, 1.5 million pangolins. Um, the rhino situation in South Africa gives us a good insight, too. In, in 2007, there were 13 rhinos illegally killed in South Africa. And by 2017, this had risen to over 1,050 rhinos killed in South Africa alone. And um, Tanzania's elephant population was reduced by 60% between 2009 and 2014. So, and this goes across the globe. Um, you know wildlife trade is not just an Africa and Asia dynamic it's in Europe we see for example illegal trade in caviar, eels and the trade in songbirds for food. The, the illegal wildlife trade is the world's fourth most lucrative crime and it affects many different wild animal and plant species across the world.
0: Those are pretty grim statistics I mean not obviously not all of those declines in populations are because of wildlife crime. Mm. Indeed, just last week, two Spanish journalists and an Irish national were attacked and killed by terrorists near a nature reserve in Mm. East Burkina Faso. Uh, They were part of an anti-poaching patrol, although not killed by poachers, but it's still a major setback for conservation in that country. Unfortunately, we don't really have time to talk about that story, so I want to focus on trafficking. You said you had come back to address how serious wildlife trafficking is.
1: Yes, I did, I did. Um, c- serious, because that, that's a term we hear bandied about quite a lot in this, in this space. So, serious crime, and it's both a political concept and it's a legal concept, and we have a political, this is a very serious issue, we must crack down on this issue. Uh, And we have the legal concept in terms of the UN Transnational Organised Crime Convention. So serious crime is defined through a four-year incarceration threshold. Uh, And I think it's it's interesting that the seriousness of the crime is defined by the sentence and not by the harm done. But the point point here is that where countries' legislation is harmonised, this opens the door for mutual legal assistance in investigations of transnational organised crime. And there has, been, there has been a strong focus in international policy, for, for example, within the UN and within CITES. Um, there's been a focus on international criminal syndicates, criminal justice responses and making wildlife crime a serious crime. Uh, and in that context, we are we're talking about the legal concept of serious crime. Uh, and much wildlife trade is international and criminal gangs and syndicates, they are sometimes involved. For example, in CITES, you get shipments of over a hundred, sorry, over 500 kilograms. Now that's taken as an indicator of organised crime and corruption. But the, you know, the point being, how do you get half a ton of ivory through the back door unless the wheels have been greased? And you can pretty much guarantee that if you're greasing the wheels for ivory to pass clandestinely, then other illicit goods are going to be going through as well. So, so we start talking about crime convergence, i.e. This isn't just wildlife going through these routes, but narcotics and gems, and people are getting trafficked. And with organised crime, I said, you know, comes corruption, pervasive undermining of the rule of law. Um, but it's important here that we also think about, you know, the, the other side of this, and that you know, it to very clear that not all IWT is organised crime, and we will never criminal, criminalise our way out of corruption. So. Criminal justice responses are not going to address structural factors underlying some of the elements of IWT, so lack of land rights or restricted access to resources or discriminatory policies and and legacies of colonialism. So-called wildlife crime, in some instances, it's simply a livelihood strategy, arising where people are being marginalized or disenfranchised. So it's important we recognize the complexity of wildlife of crime and don't think everything can be lumped into you know, transnational organized crime that needs a criminal justice response. Um, but this is also one reason that we're putting a lot of attention on financial crime and trying to sort of raise the bar and look at higher-level actors, the financiers, and the beneficiaries of crime. So recently we partnered with ACAMS, the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. And that's to work with banks and other financial institutes, uh, institutions to identify indicators of transactions linked to wildlife crime. Um, and in, in many instances, you, you know, you, you do find state actors driving illegality and violence, uh, also in collusion with big business, etc. And then, you know, we see poverty is often cited as a driver of poaching, and that is, you know, I've touched upon that as livelihood strategies, but it's also much more complex than that, because wealth and status in consumer countries, is also a critical driver. So we see in some consumer countries, speculation on extinction as a driver. So rosewood or ivory, et or rhino horn, even you know, when the species become rarer or when it becomes extinct, then the commodity you have becomes worth more. Uh, so it's a fairly dire situation. <laughs> and then we see recently you know, gender also is a critical issue I think that's been drastically overlooked uh, to date and it's you know there are a number of examples you know, where gender has you know, very serious impacts or where understanding the gender dynamics can um,
0: really help you sort of uh, come up with better better strategies. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah so, uh, yeah let me stop you there because it's fantastically complex and multifaceted. So mm. let's go back to two points you've just mentioned. The one is corruption and the other is this gender report you mentioned. Mm. So I guess let's begin with corruption. Is WWF addressing corruption and what are the dangers involved?
1: It's, yeah it's, it's a good question Pete and it's um so we we are addressing corruption, um, but let me tell you, it's 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 been a journey to get here. And it's I think largely because the conservation community has over the years been hesitant to engage in anti-corruption strategies. There's a concern about losing mission focus. Um, and in some countries, there are very real fears about staff safety, you know, if you start to talk about or touch on corruption. Uh, and I should say also in the, you know, I've been doing this working this field for sort of 25 years and um you know 15 20 years ago you couldn't you couldn't mention the word corruption in a in a meeting the, the doors the doors rapidly closed and you are ushered out so yeah. you never got very far but now you see now there's a there's a much there's a platform to do you know the convention against corruption has come into force there's the um there's a there's a better platform to talk about it and this is still quite daunting you have this term corruption you know what does that mean you know, how do we deal with a huge monolith and it does become more digestible, although so complex, but if you break it down, you th- start to think about it in terms of you know, payments to, to people to turn a blind eye, um, or judges handing down inappropriately lenient sentences, uh, etc. So um, it is complex, but you kind of start to break it down and get a better understanding. So, um, But we always have to look at it from a, in, within a human rights perspective, and it's Corruption is a human rights issue. It, it undermines human rights in whatever form it takes. Um, but look at it also in terms of, say, the rights of the child, or the rights to education. How that can be, those can be undermined by systemic weaknesses. So, you know, for example, if you're an enforcement official, you're faced with school bills to pay, but your salary has been, you haven't received your salary has been late, late payment for months. How how, how do you view acceptance of a bribe in that context. So it's important to understand the context and the nuances here uh, and, and to approach this in a systemic fashion. So, but also to think about expectations, you know, change in societal norms doesn't take place overnight. It's, this is decades and centuries work, work that, to change thinking and norms. Um, we do have a major project, um, the targeting Natural Resource Corruption Project. We have a major project ongoing. Um, and we've partnered with a number of organisations, including the the U 4 Anti Corruption Resource Centre, which is a it's a brilliant think tank um, based in Norway. With, it's just got huge knowledge and insight into how corruption in in the natural resource sector, but also in extractives, you know, oil, etc. How, how how corruption works. So, it, so it's a, it's a it's a learning process, but it's also a process amongst the conservation community for learning and. In integrating and mainstreaming corruption anti-corruption into our work. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, Rob, you mentioned a new gender report. Tell us more about that.
1: Oh yeah, so well, we're just finalising it at the moment, so I'm hoping we'll be able to put it out in the in the summer. But it's uh, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Let me let me give you a, good, a little bit of insight. Um, so. So we, what we find is that, well, A, it's been totally overlooked. Uh, people aren't looking at gender. It's starting to come into the, the sort of policy discourse in the, in the academic um, the work. But we find from you know, these interviews and literature reviews that it, it's not uncommon for men to be bullied into poaching by women or by older men through masculinity shaming. Um, and then we have these assumptions that you know, men are best suited as highly armed rangering and this sort of military, highly militarized ranging, but which, which obviously puts men at considerable risk. Um, and then also, it's considered on the other side that highly masculinized and militarized enforcement it sours relationships with community members who might otherwise be allies. And it also heightens the likelihood that enforcement will be violent or much, and much involving sexual abuse. Uh, and, and you know, let's be realistic here: half of the women, half of the world is comprised of women. And you can't exclude women from analysis of uh, illegal wildlife trade um, so and then need to think about some of the you know the prerequisites for environmental sustainability sort of the social and economic structures that promote gender equality inclusive decision making participation uh, acknowledgement of universal human rights these, you know these are the same prerequisites for environmental sustainability so I think bringing these, strands together is, is, is really important in the in the work that we that, that we do here
0: so is this a game changer i mean can we turn things around um there's no silver bullet Pete. Uh, there's
1: i think we need these multiple approaches these multiple um policy agendas to align um, and, and that's i think that's what we're seeing here which i think is really good we are seeing the the financial crime approach is coming, we've never had financial crime and financial institutes involved to this degree before. We see the emergence of the human rights and environmental agenda. Um, And we see the emergence of more and more states um, committing to the right to a healthy environment, which also underpins all all, all rights, including the right to life. So there's, there's growing awareness of the dire state of the planet and there's growing awareness of the needs through all these policy agendas to to be addressing this, and so seeing these streams come together is, is I guess, some some reason for hope, uh, even if there isn't that one silver bullet that's going to turn this around.
0: Mm. Uh, this might be a hard question. I think it's an important question. But what successes are you particularly proud of?
1: I, th- um, I, I think bringing. I think. It's difficult because when you talk about policy streams, it's not um, you know no one organisation can take um, take credit for you know for what's happening. All should be part of a conversation and part of that movement to, to bring those streams together. So bringing the human rights and anti-corruption and financial institutes together—that's something we've been involved in from the start, and I think that we feel you know, proud to have been part of that. But then recently also a very a very good progress has been with the, in terms of rangers. And we recently were part of, we were part of an eight um, eight partners who formed the universal ranger support alliance. And that's about professionalizing the ranger workforce, about bringing a human rights-based approach into into ranger, into the ranger sector. Um, And it needs to look at reform in that sector and making sure that rangers are appreciated for the work they do. Also, right, recognizing that they're human rights duty bearers, they're also rights holders, and that their rights to work need to be respected and fulfilled, and so they have the right equipment, the right training, etc. I think so. I think you know again, this is I think this is a fantastic body of work, and again, is another stream that has been overlooked. Uh, so I think I think that's where WWF has a great strength: is convening um, different policy streams. And bringing different players and actors together, so we can concentrate on that. So that
0: one, that one focus. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, Rob, we're out of time. Uh, but really? perhaps, perhaps we can have you back another time to talk about other areas, which I did want to mention. But it's it's too uh, long, such as shark finning and and of course the ivory trade and another topic that's often overlooked, which is captive breeding facilities for birds and reptiles and the link between fraudulently issued CITES permits.
1: Yeah, you've hit all, all, all some of the major major, major issues and I'd be delighted to come and talk about them sometime. There's, there's been, we've done a lot of work on all, all those elements um, and, you know, the captive breeding is, it's a good one to focus on because it's it's often seen, you know, why can't we just captive breed these species? And, and there's... There's a lot of problems in the industry, and there are some success stories too. So I'll be, I'll be delighted to come back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's a big story yesterday coming out of South Africa about captive breeding with lions and yes. you know canned. Yeah. What, what do they call it? Canned. Canned hunting.
1: hunting. Yeah. 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 Well, not to be confused so, with trophy hunting. But yeah.
0: Absolutely, but sadly not today. Uh, Rob Perry Jones, thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Pete, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much. Yeah, and I wish you all the uh, all the best. Bye. 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 Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book Mud Between Your Toes faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both Series One and Two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.